Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Turn to the Old Testament book of Ezra. Find Ezra. If you can find 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, the very next book is the book of Ezra. When the books of the Old Testament were kept in Jewish history, originally Ezra and Nehemiah were considered one book. In our modern Bibles, Ezra and Nehemiah are considered two books, but we're going to look at them both because this is a continuation of what we've been doing for many, many years here at GCA. We have been going through the Old Testament books that have to do with the history of Israel, and we've been trying to put them into historical, chronological order, because I am convinced that most people really don't understand the Bible, and they really don't get, let's say, who is Zephaniah and why? You know, why was there a Zephaniah and who was he talking to? And at what point in history does he show up? And and is he unique to any people group or any time period? Uh, People don't know that kind of stuff. So what we've been doing is we started at Genesis and we've just been working forward chronologically through the Old Testament books and plugging in the particular prophets that fit at that time in history. And we're going to do that again. Now, we started on the book of Esther the last few weeks on purpose just to get us into the time frame of the Medo-Persians ruling the Middle East after Babylon had fallen. Isaiah originally predicted 150 years in advance before anybody could expect that the Medes and the Persians were going to take over. Isaiah predicted that it was going to be Cyrus, a king named Cyrus, who God refers to as his anointed, the one he chose. And then he says, though he doesn't know me, yet I'm going to use him. He's going to release my people. They're going to come back. Well, that's long before they were even taken into captivity. Isaiah predicts by name the particular king who's going to let them go back. The Babylonian captivity happens. The Babylonian captivity is all of the Jews living in Jerusalem, in the southern kingdom, in Judah, are transported out of Judah and taken into Babylon. And so via Jeremiah, we find out that the time period that they're going to be in Babylon is 70 years. Okay, so that's a clue. Jeremiah has said it's going to be 70 years And Isaiah has said, it's going to be a king named Cyrus who's going to let us go back. So Daniel is in Babylon. He's familiar with the writing of Jeremiah. He starts praying to God that God would do what he said he was going to do and only keep the Jews in Babylon for 70 years. And then one night, Belteshazzar decides to have a feast and to drink out of the golden cups and stuff that were dedicated to God that used to be in the temple. They can't be used for any 
common use. They just have to be used for the holy business of God inside the temple. Belteshazzar decides that he's going to have a Bacchanalia feast, and he's going to get good and drunk with all his friends and family, and he calls for those items to be brought to him. Well, while he's drinking out of those cups, a hand appears writing on the wall, many, many, tackle you farson, and when it is translated by Daniel, Belteshazzar is told you've been weighed in the balances and you've been found wanting. That word, euphorson, has the same root, has the basic meaning of the Persians. The Persians are coming. Well, that night as he's having his, his feast and as he's getting drunk, the Medo-Persians are actually coming under the wall of Babylon. They've dammed up a river, and they're coming under the walls, and then they open the gate, and the armies all come in. And that night, Babylon falls to the Medes and the Persians. Gee, that was lucky, considering what Isaiah had said way in advance. (laughs) And it just so happens that among the Medes and the Persians that the leader that rises to prominence is a guy named Cyrus. According to Josephus, The Jews actually showed Cyrus, once he came into power, they showed him the prophecy of Isaiah. Look, you were named by name 150 years ago. You're the one that's supposed to let us go. Well, it's one of the mysteries of history. It's very rare that you will ever find a king who has a conquered people, and then he just up and says, uh, okay, you can go back to where you were. Okay. Why would a king do such a thing? Well, some people speculate that because he was shown the prophecy, he realized that the God of the Israelites was actually a God who had some power because he had predicted him by name. But also there was a political reason why it was advantageous for Cyrus to allow the Jews to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And that had to do with building a buffer zone. Buffer states are a useful commodity to a king who is ruling in a central location. You want the outside states to be loyal to you, because if they are loyal to you, then if war breaks out, they're going to fight the war before the war gets to where you are on the inside of the kingdom. It's the exact same thing that happened with the USSR. Uh, Modern history tells us that Russia conquered a bunch of the outlying states because they were creating a buffer zone. And so perhaps that was also the political motivation that caused Cyrus to say, well, if I let you guys go back and build Jerusalem and build your temple again, then that's going to be a good buffer zone for me should war break out, should marauding armies come up through Egypt. they got to go through you before they can get to me and Shushan and the palace and stuff. So that could have been the reason. And what we're going to read in Ezra is about the deportations of people who were allowed to go back to Jerusalem and Judah and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. And there are a couple of waves. Ezra is not part of the first wave. He's part of the second wave. The third wave of people that come in are led by Nehemiah. And so that's why Ezra and Nehemiah used to be considered one book. And then Nehemiah goes back and then he brings another group of people. So Ezra and Nehemiah are really about the return of the Israelites back to Jerusalem after their 70 years in bondage. And it's really essential that we understand where this fits in history. Because first there's the decree from Cyrus. 
Cyrus, we're going to look at it in just a moment, Cyrus agrees that the Israelites, the Jews, can go back and rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. But their enemies, who are already in that area, who for the last 70 years have been occupying that area, are not happy to see the Jews coming back and rebuilding Jerusalem. And so they start reporting to the king in Persia that these people are rebuilding their temple, and once they do that, they're going to go back to their religion, and once they go back to their religion, then they're not going to worship you, and they're not going to follow you. These are troublesome people. You don't want to have them do this. So then the king, after Cyrus has died, makes a decree that uh, the work has to stop. Well, during that time that the work has stopped, God sends prophets again to Judah to encourage the work to continue. Those are the last three books of the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Okay, those were the last three prophets that God sent to Judah to get the work rekindled that was going on in Judah and the rebuilding of the temple. So even though... The book of Ezra and Nehemiah occurs right after 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and so they're placed there historically. You then have to go past the other history books and then past all the other prophecy books to get to the books that have to do with the prophets that were around at this time and encouraging the rebuilding. So as we go through Ezra and Nehemiah, we're also going to have to spend some time looking at those prophets and looking at what Haggai had to say, and looking at what Zechariah has to say, looking at what Malachi has to say. At the end of Malachi, that puts us about 400 years before Jesus, and for the next 400 years, God is essentially silent. God's not sending any more prophets. God's not speaking to the people for about 400 years, which is why it's so exciting when you open the New Testament and you look at the book of Matthew, a very, very Jewish gospel, by the way. And you find out that God is speaking again. And he sends a prophet, John the Baptist, who is a very Old Testament prophet. And he says he's paving the way for the final prophet. He's paving the way because Jesus, the Son of God, is coming. So suddenly God is speaking again. And that's the beginning of the New Testament. So that's the general layout of what we're going to be doing for the next several months is looking at Ezra and Nehemiah and then plugging in the prophets that occur during that particular time period because once we get through them, we have successfully then started at Genesis and read the historic chronological history of Israel all the way through the Old Testament. We will have accomplished that in the time we've been here doing this. And I hope that by doing all this, that you have a greater understanding of how the Old Testament works. Okay, so now, Tom, if you would hand this out, I will put a PDF of this on my uh, blog, pastorjimmick.com. I'll stick it on Facebook in the GCA group so everybody online can see what we're talking about. This is a chronology of the post-exilic period, uh, post Exilic is post-exilic, after the exile. That's what it means. They were exiled out of Jerusalem. 
This is now a chronology of the events that happened after the exile. That's all that word means. And it gives you some idea who the Persian kings were. As I mentioned, Cyrus is the first of those Persian kings. It gives you a sense of when he was reigning from 559 to 530 BC. And the reason that that's important is because the Edict of Cyrus was the first edict of the return and the first return of 49,897 exiles who traveled under Zerubbabel to go build the temple. And the altar and the temple foundation was built. And then, of course, there are the scripture references for that and some sense of the dates when that happened. We're now talking about 500 years, roughly, before Jesus is on the planet. After that, there was a Persian king named Cambyses. He ruled for eight years. And then Smyrtus, who ruled for less than a year. Then Darius I... 521 to 486. During that time, that's the prophecy of Haggai. I mentioned to you Haggai and Zechariah would be prophesying during this time period. Well, that's when that happened. And the temple is finally completed. We're going to read about that in the book of Haggai and the book of Zechariah. Then comes this king Xerxes, who is known as Ahasuerus. The reason that should sound familiar to you is that is the period that Esther became queen. She became the queen to King Ahasuerus. So that gives you some sense historically where these things fit with each other and how these books interact with each other. But then there was also this accusation against Judah that we're going to see in Ezra 4, 6, where the work is effectively stopped because the king decides, yes, yes, we do not want the Jews to become too independent, and so the work is effectively stopped. But then... The king is told that there was a decree from Cyrus that allowed the people to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. And since the law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be changed, we saw that several times in the book of Esther, he has people go back and look for it. And apparently the chronicles of the kings are getting old and dusty by then. They go digging. We're going to read about that in Ezra that they actually come up with the original decree. By then, Artaxerxes is the king. Artaxerxes was the one who stopped the rebuilding of Jerusalem around 464, 458. But because he sees the decree of Cyrus, he puts out a second decree that allows everybody who wants to go to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, rebuild the city walls. Now, the reason that's important is because when you look at the book of Daniel and you read about Daniel's 70 weeks, I said a little while ago that Daniel had prayed to God that God would just keep his word and just make it 70 years in Babylon and an angel responds to him and says, not only 70, but I'm going to tell you 70 times 7. I'm going to tell you 490 more years of what the history in advance of the Jews is going to be. And then he lays out a prophecy of 490 years, broken up into 77s or 70 weeks. But when he lays it out, he doesn't just say, There's going to be 69 weeks of years. Instead, what he says is there's going to be seven weeks of years and then 62. And then Messiah is going to be cut off. 
and then there's this 70th week hanging out there somewhere. Okay, so why 7 and then 62? Why didn't he just say 69 of them? Well, because apparently there was going to be an interruption in that timeline as it went forward. Now the angel said to Daniel, this is going to start ticking when there is a decree from the king to go back and build Jerusalem and the walls of the city. That's when you can start counting your years. And so Cyrus puts forward that decree. The clock starts ticking. But then there's that period of time when things slow down, things stop. There's a lot of trouble in Judah and trouble from their enemies and so the work stops and so God sends them prophets and then a new decree from Artaxerxes we know when that decree was 444 BC we know when that is occurring and so that decree from Artaxerxes in 444 BC in fact I believe it's in March of 444 BC from that point forward, those are the dates that Sir Robert Anderson started from when he decided that he was going to take Daniel quite literally and start counting from the decree of Artaxerxes. And wouldn't you know, he wound up to the day at the day of Jesus' triumphal entry. Mm. And so, so that's an important thing to remember as we're reading through the book of Ezra and you're hearing about these kings and they're Persian kings and they're a long time ago and there's gaps in time and there's, and there's these different guys and there's Cyrus and there's a Cambyses and there's, there's a Hajuerus. What does that mean to me? Well, Artaxerxes and that date and that decree are very vitally important because they're also predicted by Daniel and they also are the beginning of the ticking of the clock or at least the continuation of the ticking of the clock that God has already predicted is going to end with Messiah being cut off. So this is all big Bible stuff. And unless you read the Bible chronologically this way and see the different prophets and where do they fit and what are they talking about and who are they talking to you're just not going to be able to make high nor hair out of these different books if you just start at random with some old testament prophet and just say okay i'm going to sit down and read what haggai has to say and whatever it says i'm going to apply it generally to me and maybe to the church at large or something you're never going to be able to make any sense of it that way you have to be able to understand the Old Testament in its historic chronology. So Artaxerxes, after the stoppage of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, he then allowed for the second return, 4,000, 5,000 more exiles under Ezra to beautify the temple and reform the people. And that will take us to the book of Nehemiah, which is right around 444 B.C. That's the third return of exiles under Nehemiah to build the walls of Jerusalem. And then Nehemiah 13.6 is Nehemiah's second return. And then about 450 to about 430, more or less, Malachi is prophesying. That's the book of Malachi, the very last book in the Old Testament. And when Malachi is done, that's it for the Old Testament. 400 years of silence on God's part. There are still history books being written. Those are referred to as the intertestamental books. Those are books like First and Second Maccabees and the Maccabean Rebellion and this kind of stuff, history that happened in the Middle East. But there's no more prophetic books. There's no more God speaking directly to the Jews at that point. So 
That's where we're at at the beginning of the book of Ezra. Does that give you some sense of where we are? Is anybody confused? Have I left anybody behind? That's why I gave you the handout so that you can keep that for yourself and get some sense of the timeline that we're dealing with here. Does it make sense? Yes. Okay. So we're going to begin the book of Ezra. Turn backwards to Second Chronicles. You only have to go back one page. Just turn backwards one page, and you'll be at the end of 2 Chronicles. 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles are the histories of the various kings who ruled over the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, over Ephraim and over Judah. And the succession of bad kings in the north, the occasional good kings in the south, and then Finally, the northern tribes are taken into the Assyrian captivity. They haven't returned to their homeland ever since. The southern tribes are taken into the Babylonian captivity, and then they are finally brought back. That's what we're going to be reading about in Ezra. And before we do, why was it so important that the Jews in particular, the tribe of Judah in particular, why was it so important that they get to return to Jerusalem? They had been really, really rebellious. They had rebelled against God's law, and they weren't keeping his Sabbaths, and they were chasing after all kinds of idols and things, and they were intermarrying, and they were doing all these things that made God very angry, and so God takes them out of their land so that the land can enjoy its Sabbaths, but he says very particularly, but it's only going to be 70 years. Why? Why did they get to come back? Why did they get to go back and rebuild Jerusalem? Why did they get to go back and rebuild the walls? Why did they get to go back and rebuild Jerusalem? Why does Jerusalem still exist to this day? Because Jesus has to come to Bethlehem. It's already been predicted. He's coming. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And it's already been predicted that he's going to walk in the temple of God. Well, then there has to be a temple. And the only place that God has chosen to place his name is Jerusalem. So there has to be a temple in Jerusalem. And ever since the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob has his name changed to Israel. He has 12 sons. They become the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel. At the point of his death, he leans on his staff and he predicts what's going to come in the future for all 12 of his sons. When he gets to Judah, he says very specifically that the lawgiver is going to come from Judah. He says Shiloh is going to come from Judah, whose right it is to reign. He's very specific that the scepter and law-giving will not depart from Judah until Messiah comes, whose right it is to rule. Okay, so what does that tell you? It tells you that Messiah has to be coming through the tribe of Judah. So then can God be getting rid of the tribe of Judah? No. That's kind of the point of the book of Esther, that even though Haman had tried to kill all the Jews, he couldn't get away with it because the Jews had to be preserved because they had to come back to Jerusalem, they had to rebuild the temple, because God had already said that his son was going to walk on the planet and was going to be in that temple. So there is a great big predictive element, a great big sovereign declaration of what history in advance is going to be, and once God has declared it, he absolutely is going to do it, despite the fact that the Jews have been that rebellious and have been that sinful. And every time they've turned around, they've done something that God has said, I told you not to do that, stop it. And yet, 
he has to put them into bondage and he has to punish them and he has to do all these things to them, turn them over to their enemies, but he can't get rid of them. He can't wipe them out completely because they're the people through whom Messiah is coming. And you are saved today. You have faith in Christ today because God was faithful to them. And his faithful bringing of them back to Jerusalem is all part of God's determination to save you. So again, as we're reading this Old Testament stuff, don't think, well, that's just, it's just Old Testament. That don't matter. We've been spending a lot of Wednesdays now for years and years and years in the Old Testament. Have we found any gospel in there? Yes. Yeah, plenty of it. Lots and lots of it. The Old Testament is the foundation of the New Testament, and I contend that you can't understand the New Testament without comprehending what's in the Old Testament. So, all right. I think now I'm done introducing. Wait, Tom's hand is up. I might not be. No. The prophecy of Judah does not require the other ten tribes to be there. So to make it clear and simple... He gets the other ten completely out of the way, and Judah takes center stage. And the lion from the tribe of Judah takes center stage. And yet prophet after prophet after prophet all declares that someday all 12 tribes. Mm -hmm. Isn't that great? All right then. We're at the end of the book of 2 Chronicles. We are in verse 22. We read this at the beginning of our study on the book of Esther, but we're going to read it again because we're going to read the same thing at the beginning of the book of Ezra so that you see how they combine. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, do you understand all that now? Mm, Jeremiah has predicted it's going to be 70 years in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. By the way, that means he did this pretty quickly. He didn't take a whole lot of time to make sure he was secure in his job. Once he recognizes that the God of the Jews has prophesied this and named him by name, he's kind of stirred up to get on it and do it. Now in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom And he also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Okay, so God definitely moved on him stirred him up to do this. God takes complete credit for it. However, if you go back and you read about Cyrus, there's no indication that he was ever converted to the God of the Jews. He was never a worshiper of Yahweh. He continued to worship the kings of Medea and Persia and his Baals and all of his idols. But God nevertheless worked through him. And when Isaiah predicted him, God kept saying, Cyrus is my anointed, and then he speaks to Cyrus and says, though you don't know me. And God didn't convert him, and God apparently did not reveal himself to him. He used him. 
He made him king. He made him the most powerful king in the Middle East. And then he made sure that he did exactly what God determined he was going to do, which means that God can work through absolutely anybody he chooses to. I would argue that he was working through the Pharisees when he hung Jesus because he's going to work through anybody, whether they have faith in him or not, to make sure that the outcome is the outcome that he declared was going to be. Yes, sir. That, that word anointed, I know what it means, but I can't, I can't put, it in my, put it in my mind to understand what it means. Right. No problem. I can help you out. Don't make it a spiritualized word. When a king becomes a king, in fact, I can give you an even better example. Samuel has been told by God, to go and anoint one of the sons of Jesse to be king of Israel. So he goes to Jesse. He sees all his sons. Every one of them is tall and beautiful and great. And God says, not him, not him, not him. And then he says, don't you have any more sons? He says, well, there's David, the youngest. He's out in the field tending the sheep. Samuel goes to find him. God says, that's him. What does Samuel do to him? He pours oil over him, and we read that he anointed him to be king. So all that means is he designated him. He marked him out. You're going to be the king of Israel. Okay, very same thing when God, through Isaiah, refers to Cyrus as his anointed. He's saying, you're the one I marked out. You're the one I've decided is going to be the vessel through whom I'm going to accomplish this. Because Christ is called the anointed. Because Christ is called the anointed. But think again. Think about the same definition I just gave you. What does that mean he is? He's the one that God has marked out to be the one who's going to do the things that God determined. So, yes, the anointing can have a spiritual element to it, but the word itself, anointing, kind of like the word baptism. Don't get those spiritual gears in your head going where you think that every time you see the word baptism in the Bible that that necessarily means death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Baptism, the word, essentially just means immerse, Mm -hmm. which is why we can read about John saying there's one who's going to come who's going to baptize you with fire. Okay, what does that mean? It doesn't mean dunk you in water. It means he's going to immerse you in fire. And so sometimes I think we over-spiritualize biblical words and we forget what the real definition of the words is And then when we see something like God saying that Cyrus is his anointed, we start thinking of it in those spiritual terms. But all it really means is to designate, to mark someone out as being the person chosen to perform a particular task. What if he used election? Pardon me? What if he used election instead of anointed? He elected Cyrus to do this. Yes. He chooses people to do certain things. He chose the Pharisees to hate Jesus enough to kill them. Chose Assyria. He chose Assyria to conquer Israel. Okay, he didn't save Assyria. It's a play on words with the name then. Yes, it's, it's just understanding that the word itself doesn't always have a spiritual connotation. It can have a spiritual connotation, but it doesn't always have to. You can anoint a king to designate that he's the king. But what that means is he is chosen out, he is selected, he is designated as king. Does that make more sense? Yeah, thank you. Okay. Okay, we're finally in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. This is going to sound real familiar. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah." Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So he said, not only are you free to go, but those of you who choose to go, now don't forget, you have to think about the society that's going on in Babylon, now that it's been conquered by Medo-Persia, there were some Jews who chose not to go back, because after 70 years, there are people who have grown up there, that's all they know, and they've started businesses, and they've started enterprises there in Babylon. They're not ready to give all that up to go back and rebuild a broken wall and a broken city and a broken... So, they are told, whoever does go back, make sure that the people who send them back, give them gold and silver and give them cattle and give them food, give them whatever they need, even give them free will offerings so that they're free to go back and so that there is some kind of money to accomplish this whole thing. Verse 5 says, Then the heads of the father's households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those about them Encourage them with articles of silver and with gold, with goods, with cattle, and with valuables. Aside from all that was given as a freewill offering. Also, King Cyrus brought out all the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from God and put in the house of his gods. Nebuchadnezzar had routed the temple, which had plenty of golden objects in it, he had taken all the golden objects back to Babylon. He had put it into the storehouses of his gods. That is why they were available to Belteshazzar when Belteshazzar became king and threw a feast and said, go and get that stuff that belonged to the temple and bring it in here. You can see, knowing all that, why it was that perhaps Cyrus is kind of anxious to get rid of that stuff. Because that stuff has been back in storage ever since there was a handwriting on a wall. Verse 8, and Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now this was their number, 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. Shesbazar brought them up with the exiles who went up 
from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, there are some historians who look at this name, this Shesh Bazar, and they say that perhaps this was Zerubbabel, that maybe that was the Chaldee name that he was given, but we don't know for certain. He is referred to as a prince in Judah, so if it is true that he is actually um, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel is actually a descendant of the kings of Judah. So that would make some kind of sense that he is referred to as a prince. So chapter 2 then starts. Now these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah each to his own city. These came with Zerubbabel and Jeshua and Nehemiah and Zariah and Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Reham, and Baanah. The number of men of the people of Israel is, and then there's a whole bunch of Hebrew names and the number of people that were in each of these family groups. I am not going to read these names to you. You may read them for yourself. You may go home and read them, or we could all put upon Jeff now and ask him to come read them. But he has a headache, so he's not likely to do it. But here's the point. Ezra's being very specific to tell us exactly how many men of each family group came back to Judah so that they understand historically going forward which family groups actually are responsible for the rebuilding of Jerusalem and responsible for the rebuilding of the temple. There is among, this is just a a sidelight, in fact I should step aside so that you physically get the idea that this is a side discussion I'm going to have with you now. This is one of the places in the Old Testament that demonstrate that the Jews were really good at counting. There's a book in the Old Testament known as Numbers. And you know what it contains? Numbers. Numbers. It contains a bunch of numbers. It's a count of all the different tribes of Israel and all the family groups and all the people groups and all the cattle and all the sheep and all the stuff. And because the Jews were very good at keeping genealogies, family groups, numbers, making sure that they kept track of who was who. Because remember, for 70 years they've been in Babylon. They want to make sure to keep track of all those families and who's having children and who still is considered part of the Jewish heritage and who is not. Because the Jewish heritage has particular promises that belong particularly to them. And so here at the beginning of the book of Ezra, they take the time again to spell out numbers. And the numbers actually add up because they were good at math. So the next time you hear somebody say something to you like, you know, Revelation 20 says a thousand years, but that means just large expanse of time. That doesn't actually mean a thousand years because when you see a thousand in the Bible, it doesn't mean a thousand. It just means And in the Old Testament, when you see a thousand, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean. Actually, the truth of the matter is, as you look through the Bible, it's very specific. It's very mathematic. 
And so here is another example of how mathematic the Bible is and why when God is speaking to us through numbers, we ought to pay attention because numbers are just symbols that are also communicating meaning. Therefore, we ought to take them literally the same way we take the words. Did you get all that? I threw that in for free. Okay, so there's a whole bunch of people, all the different family groups. And then starting at verse 36, there are priests that are going to return. So we read the priests, the son of Jedidiah, of the house of Jeshua, 973, and the sons of Immer, 1,052, and the sons of Pashur, 1,247, and the sons of Harim, 1,017, and the Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Cadmiel, of the sons of Hadaviah, there were 74. And the singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. And the sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, and the sons of Atur, and the sons of Talman, and the sons of Akub, and the sons of Hatita, and the sons of Shobiah, or Shobai, in all 139. And then he counts temple servants the sons of, and the sons of, and the sons of. And then the sons, starting in verse 55, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai. And then he goes through all of the servants who belong to the household of Solomon. In verse 58, he says, all the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. Now these are those who came up from Telmalah, Telharsha, Cherub, Adan, and Immer, but they were not able to give evidence of their father's households and their descendants, whether they were of Israel. So there's also a group of people who say, oh yeah, we want to come up. Oh yeah, go back to Jerusalem, get free of our life here among the... Yeah, we want to come. Well, naturally, but there's a group of people who can't prove that they are Israelites. They can't show their heritage. This is why the Jews were so careful with their genealogies and their heritage and their family groups so that you could prove that you were part of the family of Israel. Verse 60 says, The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nakoda were 652. So then what do they do to the priests who can't prove they're actually descendants of the priests? Well, they're actually removed. That's the beginning of verse 61. And the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakoz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and he was called by their name. These searched among their ancestral registration, but they could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. To be a priest, you had to prove your family heritage. Why? Because you had to be a descendant of Aaron. You had to be a direct descendant in order to be a priest. If you couldn't prove that, you couldn't be a priest. Back then, you had to be able to prove that you were of the heritage that God had elected, that God had chosen to be priests, or you couldn't do it. If you couldn't prove it, you couldn't do the job. They searched among their ancestral registration, and those records couldn't be found. So they were considered unclean, and they were excluded from the priesthood. And the governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest stood up with the Urim and the Thummim. 
The Urim and the Thummim were kept by the high priest inside the breastplate that he wore, and it was a way that the determinations of God were determined. But only the high priest got to do that. And so until there was a high priest, until they had figured it out, until they had narrowed it down, until they knew who the high priest was, those men who didn't have the heritage, those men could not even eat of the holy things because they were considered unclean. Once there is a priest who can find out from God using the Urim and the Thummim, then he can determine what's to be done with these men. So the whole assembly numbered 42,360. Besides their male and female servants, who numbered 7,337, and they had 200 singing men and women, because I think it's important when you're working that there's music. <laughs> to this day, when I just have a task to do, my wife will tell you, I'm listening to something. I need some music. I need... So I think 200 people to stand around and just give you some jaunty little ditties while you work is just a good idea. <laughs> but then above that, verse 66, their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, their donkeys 6,720. And some of the heads of the father's households, when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered willingly for the house of God to restore it on its foundation. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas and 5,000 silver minas and 100 priestly garments. Now the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in the city and all Israel in their cities. Starting at chapter 3 next week, we'll look at the altar and the sacrifices becoming restored. And then the temple work, the restoration is going to begin. And as soon as that happens, wouldn't you just know it, there's going to be adversaries right away. And the fight continues. Okay, that's enough history for one night. Are there any questions about all that? Do you understand why we're looking at the book of Ezra? Mm -hmm. Do you understand where this fits in the history of Israel? Because this is all preparation for what's to come, which is the Messiah appearing on the planet. And it's proof yet again Demonstration, yet again, of God's absolute faithfulness to his people, no matter what. And you can take that confidence with you wherever you go. When you leave here tonight, remember that you serve a God who does, according to everything he has determined to do for his people, despite them. And that's good news. It is. Yeah. It's kind of interesting comparing this migration from... Persia back to Israel to the Exodus where we really don't know how many Jews how many, there were. All yeah. kinds of speculation. Plus we're told a bunch of Egyptians said, hey, we want to go too. We're going too. And now they are very precise in their counting and if you can't give proof as to your heritage, you don't get to just say, I'm, yeah. I'm one of the priests. I want to be a yeah. priest. But until there's an actual priest to make that determination, and then you've got the Urim and the Thummim, they, they would cast that into the lap 
That's what the Proverbs is talking about. The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Weren't the original ones made as part of the, the priestly garments? Oh, yeah, as part of the priestly garments. It's part of the breastplate. have those things? Who knows? Apparently. <clears throat> must have something. But the whole point is, if you say, I'm a priest. No, really. Hey, that works well for me. Oh, yeah, I don't want to have to work. I would rather just live off the holy things for the rest of my life. And then a real priest comes along and throws the Urim and the Thummim and it comes up, no, you're not. That's a big lie. God has a way of figuring it out. Anything else? Was this helpful? Yes. Was this good that, that Jeff printed this out for you? Yes. Okay, so Jeff, you get high fives all around for Jeff. A what? For clicking print. Hey, that required effort. Because I clicked print and my printer went, no, I don't think so. <laughs> All right, anything else? We're good? All right, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.